This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, January 30, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Today we're talking with Trish Gunby, candidate for U.S. Congress, 2nd District in Missouri. She's currently serving in the State House of Representatives, having won a special election for that seat in 2019 and a regular election in 2020. It's interesting that her predecessor in 2019, Gene Evans, stepped down to become the executive director of the Missouri GOP and was replaced in that election by a Democrat. The territory Trish represents was strongly Republican, but slowly lost ground since 2014, finally flipping to blue in the special election of 2019. Trish grew up in the area that she now represents. She and her husband raised two children and were highly involved in their local church and community. As listed on her website, she works tirelessly on issues spanning LGBTQ, inclusion, racial justice, voting rights, and more. She's here with us now to talk about the issues and challenges she faces on a whole new playing field, that of the U.S. Congress. So Trish, thanks for joining us and welcome to the program. Thank you, Dan. Good to be here. Good. So I did what most people probably do when they're trying to learn about a candidate. Um, I cheated and I looked at your website and uh, and I got to, to the issues page and I noticed that it ticks a lot of the boxes on my personal list. I mean, there's healthcare, strengthening our democracy, justice for all, building for the future, putting workers first, and supporting our students, i.e. education. I'm sure there's lots of other issues, but uh, we'll talk about these issues shortly. But first, I'd like to talk about the lay of the land. Um, you are trying to move into a territory held by Republicans for a very long time, The Missouri 2nd District covers mainly the West County of St. Louis, as well as parts of surrounding counties. It's largely suburban, but it's been owned, and I mean owned, by the Republicans. I mean, you got to go all the way back to 1993 to find the last Democrat that held that seat. And her name was Joan Horn, and even then, Joan was preceded by a Republican, and she only held that seat for one term. Now, we've seen a consistent erosion of the Republican lead over the past few election cycles in this district, where Democrats came within single digits to turning that seat blue. So for you, speaking from a political and perhaps a demographic perspective, what's going on in this district that leads you to believe you have a shot at winning this election? Well, I think um, I think the district is changing. Mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, younger families are moving in. I think that there is uh, more diversity, uh, certainly not to the extent uh, that there may be in some other parts of, of the St. Louis region, but uh, we, we see Asian American families, uh, African American families, uh, different ethnic groups. I have uh, a mosque in my own state house district. So different faith traditions in many cases bring in different groups. And uh, so I think it's changing. Mm-hmm. And in a a region 
that uh, should be and is trying to be very focused on the future and technology and enticing workers here uh, to do a lot of those jobs. Uh, in many cases, you're going to get younger folks uh, who uh, are from different ethnicities, different races. So um, I think things are changing and um, I'm excited about that. And, uh, and I believe that that will, uh, that will certainly affect the outcome of this race. Sure. I know that the, uh, at the state level in, in the state house and then, and in the Senate, uh, there's been a lot of push recently to, uh, well, they have to, they have to redraw the district lines. And, um, so I, from what I understand, they're trying to protect they being the Republicans because they are at this point, a majority of the, uh, of both the house and the Senate, they are trying to protect that district. So is that presenting any issues for you? Well, you know, we'll see what ends up, um, what the final lines end up being. I mean, th there is an attempt to do that, but I think even they recognize that the region is changing. Mm -hmm. I believe um, the the committee, the redistricting committee chair even said with some of the proposed boundaries in place that he's proposing uh, that, that within the decade, when we'll do another census and redraw lines again, that this district has the potential to flip and we would have three democratic um, representatives. And so I think even he is recognizing down the road that that could happen. And my response to that is why do we need to wait? Yeah. <laughs> let's just, let's just go there. Let's do it now. Yeah. Okay. So fair enough. Uh, before we get into some of the issues, um, I'd like to explore uh, perhaps what I would call a more fuzzy side of politics. Uh, we've seen time and time again where politicians, when they're campaigning, they promise the world. And when they actually get the office, they, well, they deliver substantially less, maybe just an island or two. And Democrats in particular take a lot of heat for allegedly, and, and the operative word there is allegedly, turning their backs on the hardworking American family only to kowtow to the people with the money. I mean, there is some semblance of reality to this sentiment. Uh, there's, a, there's a famous video, for example, on the represent.us website, where Jennifer Lawrence talks about the likelihood of Congress supporting an issue that the American people care about. And what she said was very interesting, essentially was that the likelihood of Congress supporting and passing an issue was about 30%. And that's regardless of how people feel about the issue. In other words, if a majority of people support an issue, there's only a 30% chance that Congress will actually support it. But if there's an issue that basically nobody wants, there's still a 30% chance that Congress will support it. I'm not just picking on the Democrats here because this applies no matter what party is in the majority, though, like I said, the Democrats seem to take most of the heat for it. So let me take a step back for just a moment and look at the big picture. Are our elected officials, whether in state capitals or in D.C., are they serving the people or are they serving businesses? Well, you know, it's a very the entanglement of, of business, corporate money, money in general in elections um, and in our government. You know, that that uh, that flavors everything that we do, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, you've got to have money to get elected. Uh, certainly in, in a congressional race. So you're, you're, uh, everyone's asking people for support in some fashion and we're all promising things. I mean, I, 
I think you have to look at, um, there are people who have decided to be, um, they have their career politicians and mm -hmm. that's the path that they've gone down. Um, and then you look at those like myself who not a career politician, um, certainly Ann Wagner has been, um, sort of a Republican operative for years now was actually began fundraising mm -hmm. for the Republican party was awarded an ambassadorship and now is an elected official. And, um, you look at somebody like me who was asked to run for this seat and ran on a platform. I was doing certain advocacy things in the community around mm -hmm. voting rights, racial justice, those kinds of things, and was asked to run on that. Mm -hmm. And that's what I advocate for. And so it's, it's sort of, you have to kind of decide as a voter, you know, who do you favor in that regard? You know, a career politician versus somebody who was asked to run advocating for issues and trying to, to push that through. And, and if you look at my legislation at the state level that I have filed, it mirrors much of what I was advocating for as a private citizen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's what I can demonstrate personally and I can only ask people that um, to not give up hope, uh, but you just it, it boils down to you've, you've got to get out and vote and you've got to vote for people who you believe their values and policy aligns with yours. Yeah. And I believe in this district that what Ann has been advocating for and, and trying to push for, uh, that is not what the second congressional district has been for quite a while and certainly is today. So um, that's why I'm running. Okay. So um, just to get back on this issue, though, because um, I'm going to give an example here, and I just happened to clip this out of the Rolling Stone, uh, out of Rolling Stone magazine uh, on November 5th. And this is before you know, the, uh, the the latest issue with the uh, voting rights amendment or the voting rights uh, issue at, in, in the Capitol, as well as the, the filibuster and they wrote about Kirsten Cinema, and it wasn't very glowing. It said Kirsten Cinema has developed a reputation for taking loads of cash from special interests and then bucking her own party's agenda. Now it appears that several companies affiliated with the Direct Selling Association, a multi-level marketing trade group, have been funneling money into the Arizona senator, who just so happens to be just so happens to be the lone Democratic senator standing in the way of her party's push for labor reform. And, and the article goes on to say that cinema has received donations from political action committees associated with Altacor, the parent company of beauty company Amway, owned by the Trump Education Secretary Betsy DeVos's family, uh, Isagenics, which sells personal wellness products. Uh, she's also received cash from New Skin Enterprises, USANA Health Sciences, and Herbalife, um, as well as Richard Raymond Rogers, the executive chairman for Mary Kay. So, um, what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is that I'm picking on Senator Cinema because she's been controversial lately, and yet she's somewhat representative of what uh, goes on sometimes with some people in D.C. So here you are, you're coming into, you know, let's say you win this next election, you get into Washington, D.C. How are you going to avoid that call, right? When, when as, as an example, many of our members in Congress in both houses and on both sides of the aisle, right? I'm not singling out Democrats here, but many of these people spend 50% of their time offsite dialing for dollars, you know, calling for the big donor or calling the big donors and begging for money. So 
I guess what I'm asking is, you know, how are you going to avoid getting into that swamp? How are you going to avoid either being bitten by an alligator in the swamp or becoming an alligator yourself? What sort of personal checks do you have to keep you out <laughs> of that? that? That's quite a visual. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I'm in favor of campaign finance reform. I, I remember years ago seeing a 60 Minutes uh, story about the fact that uh, representatives in Congress uh, spend half their time in cubicles in a building next to the Capitol building, right. calling people and asking them for money. And that I was flabbergasted by that yeah. first time I had heard that. And um, and that obviously well before I ran for elected office. Um, and so the fact that we represent these folks to, um, you know, do a certain job for us, I don't think most of us believe that it should entail half of that job raising money to run right. again. Because you have, you have, you know, you're basically running full time when you're only serving for two years. Uh, I will tell you, and the challenge in all of this is that in order to compete, you have to raise a significant amount of money or you just aren't a viable candidate. And people don't even consider you a viable candidate if mm -hmm. you do not raise a certain amount of money. In this last race, Ann Wagner spent $12 million. Jill Shoup spent $6 million. In my state races, I raised a little over 100,000. The Republican Party spent $400,000 on both of my state house races. Hmm. Almost a million dollars for a state race. And, um, and that's why it may be difficult to find people. Mm -hmm. Who, who want to be candidates because a big part of this job is doing this. You have to be, um, you know, a good fundraiser, yeah. frankly. Yeah. When, you, when in doing that though, there have been certain groups that I have chosen to not take money from if their views don't align with mine. Mm -hmm. When I was serving on certain committees in the house, I did not take money from those individuals that would be, would have benefited from my vote. Mm -hmm. So I think personally, and, and in fact, my own personal uh, uh, investments, you know, I have changed some of my investments based on the things that I value. And I don't support, you know, certain corporate entities because of that. So I think you just have to look at the individual candidate and see if those their views align with you. I mean, money, and if we do not take on campaign finance reform, uh, money is just going to be a big part of our elections in the U.S. That's what we've decided. The other thing is they last way too long. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. the fact that as a congressperson, you have to basically run continuously with a two-year term and that we're already talking about the presidential election coming up and people are already raising money around that. You know, it's ridiculous. So I think we need, as a country, need to revisit campaign finance reform. Well, what does campaign finance reform look like to you? Well, I think, I think citizens would have to be willing to um, support the efforts of elections. I mean, you're as a candidate, you're going to have to print materials and run some ads. And, you know, those kinds of things cost mm -hmm. money, yeah. um, have a staff that assists you in this effort, coordinating volunteers, manages your campaign, you know, whatever that may look like that varies, but that all costs money mm -hmm. and employs people. 
the question is, uh, could there be limits to that? And do we have to run for office for months on end? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you shorten the amount of time and that's not, you know, then it won't be as costly. And then, you know, folks chip in and, and you have a set amount that we all use the same amount. I think it makes races more competitive. It forces incumbents to, you know, answer to their constituency, to their voters. And uh, I just think it's a better way to run elections. Money is such a huge part of U.S. elections. It's, I mean, look at certain individuals who now, you know, with, with Citizens United, you know, the Supreme Court decision, you know, that should be overturned. The fact that now you can have all this dark money and not even know who's contributing to what. Right. Um, you know, so there would need to be a major overhaul. Uh, and and the electorate would need to to really drive that because there are certain politicians that certainly aren't going to because they benefit from it. Sure. Well, as long as long as you brought up Citizens United, you you did mention that on on one of your uh, issues on your website underneath strengthening our democracy. And so I want to dive into some details there. How do you overturn Citizens United? Now, just just FYI for people listening, Citizens United refers to a Supreme Court decision. I believe the year was 2010. And they basically equated First Amendment rights with corporations. So insofar as the First Amendment is concerned, corporations are people. And I believe it was Justice Stevens that wrote this dissenting opinion that uh, said corporations have no conscience, no beliefs, no feelings, no thoughts, no desires. Corporations help structure and facilitate the activities of human beings, to be sure. And their personhood often serves as a useful legal fiction but they are not themselves members of, quote, we the people by whom and for whom our Constitution was established. And that, I believe, was the, the dissenting opinion there. Um, but this can be hard to unwind something from the Supreme Court, though, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it absolutely will be. And um, and I don't know how one goes about doing that, but mm-hmm. I... Uh, I have seen the will of the people, (laughs) you know, do things that, um, you know, I don't think we we thought could be done. And it's it's going to take the will of the people, um, you know, to rise up. And and I don't know what that looks like. I mean, there's other issues out there, Supreme Court decisions that that uh, over time have have, I believe, you know, um, been challenged and may have been eroded. And so, right. um, no, it's a, it's a heavy lift, but as sure. long as we value money as much as we do in these races, um, you're going to keep getting some of the same outco- outcomes. Right. You know, well, basically. Have you heard of an organization called move to amend.org? I have not. Okay. Um, I'll I'll send you an email on this later on. Move to amend.org proposes basically a 28th amendment. And we actually had uh, the national director on this show. Boy, it's been over a year ago. I think it was December of 2020 already. And they uh, are proposing a new constitutional amendment. And uh, surprise, surprise, a lot of people have signed up for this. A lot of representatives and senators including Cory Bush, who uh, is currently the representative for the first district in Missouri here. 
Um, and to, just to quote what the 28th Amendment would say, it, it's in three sections, but the first section says, and I quote, the rights protected by the Constitution of the United States are the rights of natural persons only, artificial entities established by the laws of any state, the United States or any foreign state shall have no rights under this, under this Constitution and are subject to regulation by the people through federal, state, or local law. Finally, the privileges of artificial entities shall be determined by the people through federal, state, or local law and shall not be construed to be inherent or inalienable. So, yeah, uh, they would be very interested in hearing from you. If you're running for office here, they would be very interested in getting your signature. So I urge you to consider them. That Again, that's movetoamend.org, all one word. Okay, I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> okay, good. I'll shoot you an email later on on, on that as well. Um, yeah, good. So, uh, in fact, let's it's, it's continue with this, uh, with this issue here, strengthening our democracy. On your website, you identified several key areas that support strengthening our democracy. Some of these ideas you present, including fighting voter ID laws, passing the Freedom to Vote Act, enhancing voter registration, making Election Day a holiday, and several others. Um, I'm going to ask you, just play devil's advocate here. What's wrong with voter ID laws? Well, I, I, the thing about voter ID laws or photo ID laws, and that was one of the things that I uh, was working on mm -hmm. when the photo ID legislation was passed here in the state. Um, on the surface, people say, you know, why, how hard is it to get a photo ID? Well, ask the, the few thousand people who don't have one <laughs> mm -hmm. and who work diligently to get them. And what I found is that there are only two organizations in the state, one in one in St. Louis, one in Kansas City. The one here in St. Louis is an outreach um, group through St. Francis Xavier Church on the SLU campus. And they have office hours every week where they invite um, folks in and help them get the underlying documents that they need in order to get a photo ID. Mm -hmm. And for some individuals, that can be very difficult. For those of us who already had a birth certificate right. and our parents drove us to the DMV to get our driver's license, many out here in, in West County where I live don't understand why it would be hard. But for some individuals who were possibly born in parts of the country in a, in a bedroom, in a home, and didn't get a birth certificate and or their you know, things burned down or that wasn't passed on to them, it's very difficult. And if sure. you don't have those underlying documents, it's very difficult to get the ID piece, the photo ID piece. And our government, um, the Secretary of State's office is not set up in a way to sit down and, and do that with people. You, you have to make a phone call, uh, you're put on hold. If there isn't that face-to-face -face contact, Mm -hmm. You expect some of these individuals to go to DMV offices that do not have evening hours or weekend hours. Mm -hmm. So you restrict when they could uh, even come in and get their photo ID. And so there just are um, obstacles that are put in place that make it difficult for some individuals to get the photo ID. Yeah. So that is the concern I have. And when uh, that legislation was passed, we challenged the Secretary of State on it, and in fact, the, the Supreme Court ruled against that legislation to use photo ID for voting because of the affidavit that was um, mm -hmm. tied to it. So for some 
I understand why people may think that, but what I learned in this process is um, there are a lot of individuals who have more challenges around this issue and the state government doesn't um, make it easy for those individuals to get their ID. Yeah, and I think that's a matter of tactics as well, right? Because some people who are in the government would say, okay, let's make it as difficult as possible. Let's make them produce a birth certificate. You know, but right now when you go to vote, they just ask for a signature. But at some level, they have to have your signature on file somewhere. And that is Mm -hmm. also fraught with challenges because I don't know about you, but I can look at my own signature from like 20 or 30 years ago and it doesn't look anything like it does today. And I could I could legitimately be challenged on my signature if they're going to use one of my older signatures. So, um, yeah, there's a there's an issue either way, I would think. Yeah. It's, you know, there, the thing I find interesting about the, the institution of voting is the idea that in all of the work we do throughout the course of the day and all of the things that we touch upon in our lives, we have tried to simplify and make all of those things easier. Mm-hmm. Buying, buying a car, buying a house, grocery shopping. Yeah. Shopping a, in general. Getting a bank account. A, oh. Yes, yeah. a bank account. Everything's moved to 24-7, Monday through Sunday, you know, all of that. All of these things we've made easier. What is the one institution we have not made easier? Mm-hmm. Voting. Voting. Yeah. Yeah. Voting. <laughs> so when you say, let's make it easier, let's expand the time people vote, let's leave the polls open later, let's vote over course of days, election day, holiday, I mean, all of these different opportunities, mail-in voting, ballot boxes, all of these things that could be done, uh, that is the one thing that people say, oop, nope, I'm going to buy a car and I'm going to submit my taxes and I'm going to do all that online and I'm going to mail all that to you. But when it comes to voting, nope, we're not going to let you do that. Yeah. And that's what I have a problem with. Yeah, I do too. And and I come at it from a technical perspective. I'm a nerd. I've been a nerd my whole life. I'm an engineer, electrical engineer and software programmer. And I look at this, I I do my banking online. If I want to deposit a check these days, all I have to do is take a picture of it with my cell phone, right? And and I trust the technology pretty much. I mean, there's, there's ways I can... I can do, I can verify and validate things. If I see some sort of charge on my credit card, uh, every charge my credit card comes up instantly on my phone and it, it buzzes me and says, hey, you know, your charge, you had just had a charge. Yeah, I look at this whole situation and I say, wow, you know, if we can open up a bank account, uh, if I can buy a house or rent a house or lease a house or whatever, what's the big deal with me, you know, being identified as a legitimate voter and that should happen automatically. Um, right. At some point you still have to identify yourself for the voting board when you go in to cast your ballot. But, uh, but I get your point though. There's the, the tactics have been gummed up a lot by people who have perhaps less than virtuous intent in suppressing votes. Okay, uh, let's move on to one of your first topics, which is healthcare is a human right. And I, I recently heard this, and I did a little bit of research on it. I heard that crowdfunding has become a sort of de facto major player in the health insurance market. And indeed, the Journal of American Medical Association said that crowdfunding services 
like GoFundMe, have raised about $3.7 billion. That's B, billion, B with a billion with a B, $3.7 billion between 2010 and 2018. And most of that money was gathered in the latter years. Uh, specifically in 2010, there were just 42 healthcare-related campaigns on GoFundMe, uh, seeking a total of only about $717,000. But in 2018, that number shot up to nearly 120,000 fundraisers seeking more than $4.6 billion. Now, that's what they were seeking. That's not what they what they were able to get, but they were seeking $4.6 billion. And that's been you know four years ago now since that statistic has been gathered. Um, and we all know that the leading cause of personal bankruptcy in America is medical bills. Mm-hmm. But every time, and I, I across the board, every time the Democrats start to talk about universal health care, they get painted with the broad brush of socialism. And so Democrats are truly locked in a tight space here. You know, it, how, how do you break out of this space? How do you, how do you, how do you talk about healthcare being a human right and not get painted with this broad brush of socialism? Well, I think we just have to do a better job of, of, um, you know, our messaging. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I have, you know, very close to me and my family, my husband's a physician, my daughter's a nurse, you know, she's been dealing with COVID patients, you know, since this pandemic began. And, um, I, like everybody else, have seen the GoFundMe accounts. I noticed, you know, a couple of months ago, uh, it made the news here in our our area about the young girl who had a life uh, or had a, a, a life threatening disease, and she raised, I think, a hundred thousand uh, dollars to get care or treatment for her her disease. Mm-hmm. And everybody, you know was so proud of what a great job she did. And my response to that was, we should be ashamed of ourselves yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that a child is reduced to raising money to save her life. Yeah. I mean, I just want that to sit with everybody. Like, first of all, I, I am very proud of her that she did that because goodness knows our healthcare system or her insurance company wasn't going to do it. Right. But if that is what we think is is the um, that's the way we should do business here when it comes to health care, that's a mess. I, I don't understand that. And so the other thing I don't understand is, you know, as people pay into the system. Pe- those of friends of mine and family can't wait to turn 65 where they can get on their Medicare and yeah. everything. Yeah. I mean, everybody and, and my my parents are, uh, you know, my have been a part of that. My mother is, my dad has passed, but, um, you know, I'm nearing that my husband is, and you talk to people who participate in that program and they can't wait. And they, they may buy additional supplemental plans for different things, but you go in, you do your thing, you get an itemized list of this is what you did and you don't have to pay anything. And so I don't understand where the disconnect is between you want it when you're 65 why would you not want it when you're raising your family or for you personally? Mm-hmm. Because when I talk to people about the mountains of, of bills they get and trying to reconcile things and the phone calls spent and the hours on hold and talking to the insurance company, I mean, I, I, I don't believe that the vast majority of people are in favor of continuing down that path. And so I think it's a messaging problem 
and one that we just have to do a better job uh, explaining that we can create a healthcare system that is universal, that everybody can take advantage of. We can make it more simple, more streamlined, and we can make it accessible. Mm-hmm. And there's a way to do that. And yes, it may take a series of stops and starts and, and we're not going to get it right the first time, but certainly what we have going now is not working. Yeah. Well, this gets back to that 30% thing I was talking about earlier. No matter how much people want something or don't want something, the probability of it being supported by Congress is 30%. And mm-hmm. um, according to a Pew Research Center study, this was back in September 2020, among the public overall, 63% of U.S. adults say that the government has the responsibility to provide health care coverage for all. So you're right. You are definitely in the in the majority here, and I really don't think— that you need to convince that many ordinary citizens of the benefits of this. The fight you're going to have, I think, is convincing the people in Washington, D.C. to support this thing. And, and Obama gave it the college try, but I think he still uh, he had some incremental success. I think he moved the needle a little bit, but still we're stuck in this situation where we have a lot of insurance companies, uh, medical insurance companies that are standing between you and your doctor. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that this is this is a really good fight to have um, uh, and more power to you. Uh, just a personal recollection. Well, and, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say and just one thing to add to that, too, is, you know, as we are aging and people are living longer, it's going to be it's going to continue to be a problem and even get bigger because we are not producing as many generations behind us to, yeah. to support those of us who are going to live longer. So right. we're going to have to figure out a way to get that right because if if a lot of the 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 um, the services are going to those who are aging and living longer, you certainly want to provide to those who are younger and who are starting families and and that sort of thing. So, you know, across the board, we want it to work out for all citizens, but there's going to be um, uh, it's going to be imbalanced just because of of uh, the elderly population growing, living longer, and those coming behind us, we don't have those numbers to support, you know, what's ahead. Yeah. Well, I was, I was going to say that uh, to that point, um, a few years ago, I had the privilege of, um, of meeting Claire McCaskill and spending a few minutes with her. <laughs> and, and I told her, I says, uh, there are two types of people in the world, those that have pre-existing conditions and those that will have pre-existing conditions. <laughs> Old right. age is a pre-existing condition. And so I think, you know, you're, you're right with, with, you know, you turn 65, you get Medicare coverage. Uh, and maybe there's some recognition about the fact that, you know, old age is a pre-existing condition. But um, you're absolutely right. I, I believe that, that uh, you know, I, I, I personally have met a lot of people. Uh, I knocked on doors in the past. I met a lot of people that said, hey, if it weren't for Obamacare, I'd be dead. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, and these are not old people. These are younger people that have issues like maybe you know type one diabetes or or some other condition that's this chronic. And they if they don't get their medicine, um, you know they will not survive. Which right. which brings me to another point here. Uh, Medicare, I understand cannot bargain with for medical price for prices for medicines. Is that correct? 
Right, right. And that's one of the things, I mean, I, we should be able to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. around. I mean, when people are, you know, going to Canada to get, get their medicine, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, those are things that need to happen. I mean, in all of this, I mean, you know, you typically negotiate with companies on a lot, whole host of other issues or other things. So um, why should pharmaceuticals not yeah. be a part of that? Right. And in, in the end, we all pay it then, right? Because it's part of Medicare. So if they're right, not able right. to negotiate exactly. for prices on drugs, um, yeah, it's crazy. It's just crazy. And it, it's blatantly obvious what's really happening here. Um, it, it, what's yes, going it on is. In the background. Just, and, and the way you know that is if you watch television, how many, what, what is the percentage of ads you see that are pharmaceutical ads? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So right there, that tells you that who's making money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of, of those ads, they always spend a lot of time telling you about symptoms that you could have by taking the medicine. And I kind of start to feel sick after I listen to that. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> they shouldn't talk so well, much and, about and it. Well, and it's, but, it's, but, but you know, they are effective because my, oh, yeah. my husband will say, you know, people come in and say, what about, you know, fill in the blank because they've, you know, they've seen the ads. Yeah. So um, they are effective. Yeah. And they run a bunch of them. Yeah. People start to become the doctors then. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine yeah. it's really frustrating for, for a physician. Um, well, I think, mm-hmm. well, uh, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome to come on again and talk about it. I tell you, I, I would no, love no. to have Well, I, I, I do mm-hmm. want to go on records as saying my husband one of the hardest working people I know. And, and I know that because I, I see him leave early and for work in the morning, he gets home late at night. And now that everything is computerized and people can email their physicians, you know, he could, he's working 24 seven. Wow. Uh, and so there's, there's an immediacy to the job now that there used to not be, you know, you had to wait for office hours and, and things like that. And now like so many things, again, healthcare, you know, staying alive. We've made that simple. We've made it convenient. We've made it fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike voting that we talked about earlier. So people want access right away. They want a response right away. They want the solution right away. You know, all of those things. And uh, we see that happening in healthcare, but we don't see that obviously in voting. In voting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. So let's move on to another topic or another issue that you had. You, you had this one issue called Justice for All. And mm-hmm. I've, uh, I just want to just talk a little bit about our own past here. We've had Bobby Bostick on this podcast in the past. I don't know if you know who he is. Uh, he's currently serving a sentence of 241 years. He's in Jefferson City Correctional Facility. He's now right. 43 years old, and he has still has a way, quite a ways to go. Now, at 17, he was given this sentence at 17 for a crime he committed when he was 16. Um, and according to Missouri's parole rules, he will not be eligible for parole until he's 112 years old. So um, that even made your dog whine about it in the background. I know my it? dog. <laughs> I'm sitting here. I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see if she's gonna. She has awakened, and. <laughs> She is, uh, uh, she is elderly herself. She's 15 and wow. she's expecting me to take her for a walk. So I'm hoping oh. there she goes. Okay. <laughs> she we'll <does>. see. <laughs> I have a cat laying right. down next to me and that thing snores all afternoon. That's crazy. Oh, no, she's, she's gotten cranky as she's gotten a little older anyway. Yeah. Just like people. 
Yeah, um, just like exactly. <laughs> so anyways, getting back to Bobby Bostic here, um, it literally took an act of Congress, that this would be the Missouri Congress, to give Mr. Bostic a break. And believe it or not, it was a Republican that got the job done. As far as I can tell, it was Nick Schroer advocating strongly mm-hmm. for carving out an exception for Mr. Bostic and others like him who have committed felonies before they were 18. And I know you know Nick Schroer. Um, I know you're a big fan of his, not. Um, <laughs> and believe it or not, I've been trying to get him on this podcast for some time and he never returns my calls. Anyway, no. you know there's something terribly wrong with our justice system when even a Republican says, whoa, this is too much. So... So I enthusiastically applaud your efforts uh, to reform justice. But um, w- what are the main issues you see in our current justice system? I brought up Bobby Bostic as, as an example, but what other issues are you seeing? Well, I think, um, you know, just the, the system in terms of um, just the whole judicial system, you know, from the get-go, just people getting through the system uh, mm-hmm. before they're even sentenced, Um you know, I know that um, Missouri has just tried to fund more public defenders. And and so just in terms of, of getting the lawyers in place just to so people don't have to sit in jail, <laughs> you know, right. as long as they as they do. And and uh, so it starts from, you know, from that piece and then it goes all the way down, you know, into sentencing. I mean, I was opposed to, um, you know, when you're sentencing juveniles as adults. And I know there's some horrendous things that can happen that have happened uh, that juveniles have have done. But the whole argument, in fact, I had a a group that uh, did a Zoom with me last year talking about, um, you know, brain development and Mm -hmm. and the impulsive nature of um, of people until they, you know, are pretty much in their mid 20s and to treat them as as adults. even though they've you know committed a, a terrible crime, I, I can understand that from the the victims and the victims' families' point of view, obviously. But um, I don't think you should lump those individuals in together. Um, I would hope that they can be rehabilitated in some fashion. Mm-hmm. And there's a group of you know once you make it through that system, and if you do get um, sentenced and are in you know the Department of Corrections in some fashion. You know, I think we have to do something to try and uh, um, educate and train those individuals so when they're out, you know, they can get to work right. and provide um, opportunities for them when they're incarcerated so that uh, when they are released, um, you know, they don't recommit themselves, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, back into the, 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 the system. So, I, you know, all of that costs money. Um, and, but it pays but, in but a I sense too, But I think it's something right? that, that needs to happen, certainly. Yeah. I, I think you could make a good conservative argument there because if people come out of these so-called correctional centers and they become productive members of society, then society is in itself somewhat rehabilitated. Uh, I know mm-hmm. when I talked to, I think it was Mr. Bostic I was talking to on, on a previous podcast, and he had this number in his head. He said something like $47,000 a year it costs the state to keep every person in the correctional facility. So over the, over the course of like, you know, 10 or 12 years, that's half a million dollars. You know, yeah. and if these people are out there and they're productive and they're productive members of society, and guess what? They become taxpayers too. 
um, right. You know, it, the the and, investment and is, is you know so there. many of these. I mean, around all of these facilities, certainly in Missouri, there's uh, there are either um, you know public institutions, community colleges, uh, public universities, training facilities. You know, labor unions obviously have uh, training facilities for their workers. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we could do so they would have a skill, a trade when they get out because many of those programs, you know, last a few years. And they would almost they could almost leave and have a job in place. And I know that that's something that that labor is trying to do is to bring in uh, persons of color, uh, various ethnicities, just all different groups of people, you mm -hmm. know, socioeconomic, all of those things. So no matter who might be um, behind bars, so to speak, um, there's an effort underway to uh utilize individuals in such a way that that when they're done and they've served their sentence that they could come out they would have a job and to your point be um you know contribute to society yeah. and my my dog agrees with me <laughs> <laughs> that's a good dog um yeah just to just to wrap this up though the I, I I sometimes wonder why they call prisons correctional centers, and I, so I did some research on that topic. And believe it or not, it wasn't originally intended to be cynical, although it is that way now. The original intent was to actually help correct people's behavior. Um, mm. But that kind of turned. I mean, we know what it all turned into now. The main purpose of prison, in reality, now is to simply lock people up and forget about any sort of corrections and pretty much I don't, treat them like animals. I mean even worse than animals in my opinion well and the and you know even i know funding for those facilities and certainly the workers who work in them you know missouri's at the bottom of of many lists for things like that so mm -hmm. it's it's hard to find folks to to staff those facilities and um when you don't have the right support staff or people you know working there um it's obviously going to affect you know how prisoners are treated and yeah and all of that so yeah. um again what all of this, a lot of this always comes back to, to money. Yeah. And have, have we decided that this is a segment of the population that we are going to rehabilitate, we are going to return to society and have them be productive. And to do that, that's going to cost money. Just like I would send my children to school or do those kinds of things. Um, that's what we would need to do. And there's yeah. obviously mental health costs around some of that counseling, you know, all of those kinds of things, addiction, Sure. Just like it, just if even if you're not, uh, you know, in a facility in general, there are many individuals dealing with those things. And so if we're going to put those efforts into people who are not incarcerated, we need to be we need to expect to do it to those, you know, who are. Yeah. I so. mean, it makes perfect sense. You you invest in your child's schooling. You could say, well, I'm going to be penny wise, pound foolish and not pay for my 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 child's education and then um you're really going to make the problem a lot worse so like i said i think it's actually a fairly conservative principle to invest in truly doing uh correctional uh type of operations because mm -hmm. you end up with uh, a better society but um anyways I totally agree anyways uh, i'd like to move on to <clears throat> one more topic here we're kind of running a little bit sh a little bit short on time here but i wanted to talk about your uh, another one of your issues here called build for the future and uh -huh. the bullet points in your website seem to mix together infrastructure with some of the green new deal things and so there's a lot of things to unpack so I, just before i ask you the question here i want to say there's one thing that sort of bothers me about again about the democratic party 
is it Biden's landmark infrastructure initiative, the, the Build Back Better uh, program? That's huge. I mean, that is really, really huge. To impersonate Donald Trump, it's huge. And here we are today. The Democrats barely beat this drum. I mean, the huge news was gone in one news cycle. And I think this is one of the most significant investments uh, in American infrastructure since the New Deal. And the New Deal was like 90 years ago, right? And we're still talking about it today. So, uh, you know, I'm a little bit frustrated because we don't hear anything except crickets from the Democrats on this. They should be beating this drum pretty loud. Um, But anyways, to get back to the to the question here, uh, what are some of the things in your mind that uh, we need to start with and so far as build for the future? Well, obviously, all of this, you know, we're investing not only uh, in our future generations, but but we're investing in our planet. We want it to be around and Mm -hmm. be safe to to live on. Um, And so part of that has to do with with infrastructure and all the projects that would um, you know, fix our roads and bridges and make our water clean and provide mm-hmm. internet to everybody. And, you know, all those different projects that'll take years to, you know, to, to be completed. But in addition to that, I mean, I think this whole environmental or green portion of it, um, I think there's ways to do all of that, you know, simultaneously. And I understand why they might've lumped all of that together. Mm-hmm. Um, because in doing all of that, it's going to have to be done in such a way that that it's it's good for the environment. And um, a lot of the projects, the intent is to make them environmentally friendly. When you talk about electric vehicle charging stations and you know things like that, so sure. what you're building is something that is going to make it um, make it better uh, for the environment. But some of that, it it also includes things that. Um, just in terms of communities and and how you uh, connect communities together with housing or uh, walkways, green space, you know, all of that. I was talking to uh, a mayor recently in the second congressional district, and he was talking about all this green space that was added and all these trails. And so I think what people are looking for are uh, communities that they can live in that connect them to services mm-hmm. and to their neighbors. And the way you do that is going to be through these types of projects that will provide jobs and uh, it'll make it more pleasant sure. <laughs> to live. It'll, it'll bring us together in a way. Um, and so you know, it all, you can see how it all sort of comes together. Mm -hmm. It feels like it may be disparate or whatever, but um, I think that's what people are looking for. And that's what I think this program will do. I see. I see. Yeah, I was, I was afraid because one of the criticisms I have with the Green New Deal is that it is too much. You know, I, you know, you you talk about the, the Bernie Sanderses of the world, they, they like to come up with these really big ideas, but when, you know, when they get in the position of, of doing things, you find out that everything's incremental. You know, the government doesn't really jump ahead unless it's, you know, a, a real, truly a national emergency, like a war or something like that. Um, and then because the Democrats, uh, and, I, and I, I should probably put this on the Republicans as well, but if you try to do too much too soon and you aren't able to do it because you run into reality, then people get disillusioned. Yeah. I mean, I've just found, you know, even at the state level, and I would imagine it translates to the national level, um, you know, we see this 
you know, you see all these individual bills, which on their own are good or bad or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you start running out of time Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you're like, let's just put all that together. And it somehow is going to work. And so I'm sure that is, it's a similar way of of, uh, operating. And there is a way to group all that together. And, And if you were to come out and say, I just got this one bill for this particular thing, it just doesn't have the same uh, appeal as something that has all this good stuff in it. And so I think the Democrats just decided, you know, we've got all this good stuff, let's put it all together. Um, Maybe people don't agree with everything. It's very rare that there's a big omnibus bill that everybody agrees with everything. So you just have to say, for the most part, the majority of this I can get behind. And, uh, I think that's what they did. And, and I'm glad the infrastructure piece passed. I would hope that the, uh, you know, the second piece is coming at some point, but we'll wait and see. Yeah. Well, I hope so. Um, so the final topic I want to talk about today was you have this other issue on your website, um, put putting workers first. And Mm -hmm. I like the idea of putting workers first, but unfortunately, this is yet another, and I, I, you know, I keep picking on the Democrats. I really don't mean to do this, but they have this reputation of getting to Washington D.C. and then ignoring the workers. So, what are you going to do personally to sort of buck this trend? Well, I think people have taken notice of the workers, mm-hmm. uh, certainly since the pandemic started, um, and I, I support them in their efforts to. Um, you know, do what they think is right for them, whether it be, you know, affect things that affect their health. Obviously with, with the pandemic, it's sort of laid, you know, open a lot of the, the gaps that we have. Yeah. And in terms of workers and workers' rights, you know, a safe workplace, uh, good benefits, uh, a living wage. I mean, all of these things that, you know, why should I expect, uh, I expect that in my own life, why would, somebody else not expect that in their life. And just because they're um, handing me some food at a restaurant or I'm picking up my cleaning, you know, they deserve the same rights that I have when it comes to protecting myself and earning a a fair wage. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we've seen is um, a situation where the virus made people realize number one early on, and it's hard to remember back there, but you know, we didn't have a vaccine and people were dying in large numbers. And so am I going to put my life on the line and leave my children orphaned who are at home because schools are closed to go back to work for very little money or not enough money because I have to have two jobs and I don't have benefits and I don't have health care. Uh, in a state that is still challenging Medicaid expansion. Um, and so kudos to them <laughs> for yeah, saying yeah. enough, enough. And I, I think what we're seeing now is I think we're seeing a shift in how people look at their lives and what's important to them. I think for America, so much of what people, what we, you know, we're very, you mentioned money earlier. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, the dollar has been such a, you know, you're successful if you make this much money, if you have these things. And I think this generation coming up doesn't have hold those same values. Yeah. And I think we're seeing some of that 
not only in the younger generation, but any, even those of us who are older, who have said, you know what, I've done all this. It's not worth it. Mm -hmm. It's not worth it. And so I think we're in a transitionary time uh, and people are reevaluating how hard they're going to work. I mean, I just heard uh, somebody from Congress. I saw on the, on uh, the news the other day, he's got legislation for a four day work week Yeah, and paying people the same, but people would have more time to be with their family, uh, with friends, leisure, mental health, self-care, all those things. I mean, I think people are reevaluating their place in the world and saying, my life is more important than just what I earn. Yeah. But if I'm going to earn something, I'm going to do it in such a way that you respect me and it's safe and I'm paid fairly. And I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, you know? It's, it's kind of funny because people talk about uh, automation taking their jobs. And automation is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a nerd. So automation, I can see that uh, taking on more and more tasks. And the original promise from when I was a kid back in like in the 1970s or whatever, the original promise was, oh, these are going to be labor-saving devices. We're going to have everything automated. And what I find out in reality is that people are, are more busy today, it seems, than they were back in the 70s. It's, they're certainly not less busy. <clears throat> so this this idea of the four-day work week, I think, is a, is, a, is a pretty good idea insofar as being able to um, sort of replace some of those hours that now automation is delivering, why don't we just start cutting back our work week to a four-day work week, take that extra day for, yeah, like I say, family or, or maybe learning something, learning a, you know, more about your trade or whatever. Um, I like that idea. I'm glad that somebody's actually out there proposing it besides me just proposing it in my head. Well, and I think it just kind of goes back to we, ha we, we have so many set hours in the week. We have filled them with so much and things have been automated to the point where you can do anything at any time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, before mm -hmm. stores weren't open on certain days until certain times. I mean, there, there was a lot of, there were parameters in place that prevented you from doing things. Right. And I, I still recall, I'm old enough to recall uh, when fax machines started and when FedEx started. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in my office realizing, oh, I can't wait for that to come by snail mail. Yeah. <laughs> I don't use that in a derogatory way by any means, but it's going to take a few days. Yeah. I, I'm going to have to wait. I, I have to do it right now because they got it to me the next day or they're sending it to me right now and they expect me to do something about it right now. I don't have an excuse to wait. And things have been, you know, the speed of things has just moved in such a way that I think people are now saying the one thing the pandemic did is it forced people to stop, to slow down, recalibrate, and realize, you know what? Speed is good in certain instances, but it's maybe not always good. And, and so I think we just right now when people are, when, when are we going to get back to normal? How is, you know, we're in a transitionary time and it's going to take a while for these things to, for us to figure out what is the new normal. I don't know what that that's going to look like. I don't know that where we were 
a few years ago that we will ever return to that. I think people have gotten creative and things have changed. And um, yeah, I, I look forward to seeing what, you know, the future brings. That's a good point. I, I, I like that. And, you know, I think that we have to find some sort of parity in living with speed in a sense. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, one of the things that uh, I learned, this is kind of trivia. Uh, I think it was the election of 1860. And there were there was a big push at that point. Gosh, I can't remember which state it was. It was Nevada or something like that was going to become a state. And they wanted the, the Nevada to become a state so they could have a, a say in the next election. And like I say, I think it was 1860. It might have been 1864. But anyways, speaking of speed, uh, they transmitted the Nevada state constitution through Morse code back to Washington, D.C. Because they, <laughs> they, they, they needed to uh, get it done quickly. So that's an early, a very early example of using technology to, uh, to speed right. things up. You just couldn't wait on the guy on horseback. <laughs> exactly. Couldn't wait for the Pony Express or whatever That's it was right. they were using That's back right. then. Anyways. So uh, last question for you is where can people go to get more information on your campaign and get involved? They can go to my website, trishgunby.com. We are uh, recruiting volunteers now. We have a lot of opportunities around um, door knocking. We'll resume that soon once the virus kind of subsides. Uh, we're phone banking, folks to put out signs if they want to host events, uh, fundraise, all of that. Okay. Uh, so you can go to the website. You can find out more about me. There's there's a volunteer portal and uh, sign up and one of my volunteer team members will reach out. Okay. And it's the, your last name is spelled G-U-N-B-Y, Trish Gunby, all one word, correct? Correct. TrishGunby.com. TrishGunby.com. Good. We've been talking with Trish Gunby, Democratic candidate for the U.S. Congress from Missouri, District Number 2. Trish, thank you again for stopping by today. Thanks again, Dan. Really appreciated it. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Ray Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week. <music>